first of all, I'm trained as a chiropractor. I worked like 39 years doing that, but always in the background, I've had an interest in electronics and an interest in odd things, resonances, Tesla, other such kind of fringe instruments, inventors, people that made a difference in the world. And that's kind of my basic background. So no, I'm not an electrical engineer, but I am someone who's creative and I have five patents for the devices that I've developed. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, James Baer. He's the inventor of the uh, Rife slash Baer resonant frequency system. So we're going to talk about what are called uh, Rife machines and Royal Rife, the inventor of them. And uh, it sounds like James has a new type of machine or iteration on it. So welcome, James. Thank you for coming. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background first and how you got to you know, find these machines and use them, and then we'll get into what you're using them for today. All right. Well, I mean, first of all, I'm trained as a chiropractor. I worked like 39 years doing that, but always in the background, I've had an interest in electronics and an interest in odd things, resonances, Tesla, other such kind of fringe instruments, inventors, people that made a difference in the world. And that's kind of my basic background. So no, I'm not an electrical engineer, but I am someone who's creative and I have five patents for the devices that I've developed. Okay. Well, how did you first come across the Rife machines? And then it sounds like, again, you you may have modified them to suit a different purpose or function. So tell me about that. Well, so I was introduced to the whole Rife story back about 19, oh, mid-1990s, and it just literally struck a chord with me. It's like, holy cow, that may actually have happened. It seems to make sense to me. So I looked around and found out that, you know, what technology there was was kind of worthless and existing technology. And people, there was a whole lot of urban legends, a whole lot of you know, misdirection and problems. And I just said, you know what, I think I can build a device based on some principles that I know, you know, as a chiropractor that work physiologically and combine them with some of these electronic principles that supposedly Dr. Reif was working with and maybe come up with something. So I did. And lo and behold, the very first instrument I made had effects. And it, it was rather shocking, actually, how well it worked. I oh, well, what did you make and what, what did it do? Well, so I originally, I, I built this thing and people were reporting to me that, hey, it's helping with pain. And, you know, so I went out and one of the things Dr. Reif did was he blew up some microorganisms and things with his instruments. So I went up and picked up some simple pond water organisms and they uh, worked up a microscope and started videotaping this thing. And lo and behold, it too would blow up these little microorganisms, these protozoans. 
and it did a pretty good job of it. And it was frequency specific, and it's that's been replicated by quite a few people over the years. It's not really a focus anymore, but it was more of like a proof of concept. It's like holy cow, no one's done this, you know, since Rife back in the 1930s, and uh, here it is, you know, close to the year 2000, and I'm doing it with something entirely different. It really wasn't a true Rife device. It was something I came up with, a variant of the concept. Oh, how, did, how does it vary? How is it different? Well, it gets into electronics, but basically the concept behind it is there's a variety of early electrotherapeutic devices, and, and they all had one thing in common that made them produce effects, and that was they produced a wide bandwidth of emissions. It wasn't just a focused, like, you know, radio station, which is tuned to 97.3 megahertz. It's not like that. It spreads across a wide spectrum. And so I, I, my, my concept was, well, how can I replicate this while staying within legal modern-day FCC requirements? And I figured out a way around that. And, and part of that is called overmodulation which is an exotic thing. Engineers are taught to avoid that at all costs from working with radios. And in fact, I, I had, I can't tell you how many engineers I approached going, hey, I need a transmitter that does this. And they're like, uh, don't know. And I'm not going to do that. I could lose my, you know, whatever licenses I've got for building something like that. But it, it's never been about communicating to another human being. It's about communicating to the cells of the body, whole different concept. And that's, that's its basis. It's a wide band emission. And everything is called coherent. Everything is like in a, uh, related to the initial input frequency. But what, what would be the uses? Like, is this uh, for people that have cancer or is it people that just want to experience less pain and better well-being? Like, what are the possible uses? Well, certainly I mentioned pain and people have used it for that for a variety of things. You know, pain is associated with many different conditions. One of the things that it's often used for is like fibromyalgia. It doesn't cure it, but for whatever reason, person people take exposures with it and they get two, three days of pain relief. It, it gives them back their life. It doesn't cure them, but it just, it, it provides a, a long-term relief from a single like 45 minute to an hour exposure. Cancer, I don't know, many of these, many of the lessers may not be aware that there's a, a fourth treatment modality for cancer. So like traditional is chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation. The fourth version is electromagnetics. And Dr. Reif kind of pioneered this way back in the 1930s. It got lost, swept under the table. And of course, it's a political hot potato. Fast forward to the late 90s, early 2000, and a group in Israel came out with a device called the Novacure device. Uh, Yoram Palti, Dr. Yoram Palti and some others were behind this. And that device has now got, obtained backing from one of the founders of Microsoft. He has a TED Talk, by the way, you can look up. And the device has FDA approvals for several different cancers, and they have several different cancer treatments in uh, clinical trial stages that are advanced stages of tr clinical trials. And they will probably be going to full approvals somewhere in the next couple of years. So it's coming. It's a fourth stage of uh, treatment for cancer. The difference is, is that the Novacure device uses electrodes. 
And, and electrodes are great. You can focus energy using a array of electrodes. And that's exactly what Novacure does. But the problem is you can only put so much energy across an electrode before you start burning the skin and irritating things or electrocuting the patient. My device utilizes an emitted field. So there's like an antenna on it of sorts. One may say the antenna is, it's what it really is. It's, it's a plasma. You create a gas plasma and the plasma emits this oscillating pulse electromagnetic field. It has a large electrical aspect, but it also has a magnetic aspect. And that's what does the work. But being an emitted field, it'll penetrate the whole body. And the advantages are obvious. And that's some of the things we have a little research group. We're experimenting around with it. And we've had some initial success. And we've had some publications that we put out of that success. No, when you say success, is, again, is this working with people that have cancer? Or is it other things going on with them? Well, not with cancer. Although there are doctors that have made case reports but and such. And those are available if you know where to look. But they are out there. But as far as success has to do with our testing just on cancer cells, primarily leukemia. And we're going to be bringing out a paper here pretty soon. It's just we're just finishing it up. It has about a 35 to 40 percent reduction in uh, growth rate compared to the controls over three days of nine hour exposure uh, per day, expo- per day exposure. So it's pretty dramatic. Okay. Before we continue. I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So yeah, again, what are the complaints people have that you've been able to help most successfully? Like what what have they come in with? And you know, during treatment, what do they experience after treatment? What do they experience? Well, all right. So, I mean, there's a variety of things people use frequency instruments like mine for. And um, one of them is, of course, there's, there's problems with infectious agents that are not well treated. Uh, Lyme is a common one that, you hear, that one hears an awful lot about. And people use these instruments to treat Lyme. They use them for a variety of other chronic illnesses. And often with good success, there's a reason behind that. Uh, especially when dealing with viruses. Viruses are unique. In fact, this is one of the patents Joram Palti discusses, the use of electromagnetic fields to treat viral infections. And and we all know that you go to a hospital and they have air cleaners. They're called electrostatic precipitators. And how they work is basically it passes the air through a charged couple of plates and Things that have a charge to them played out to like the positive or negative plate. Well, viruses have a charge to them. And that means they can be be manipulated by a charged field. Not only that, but viruses also have the ability to or depend upon that charge, that an electrostatic charge, literally, to replicate, to invade their host cells, 
and even exit their host cells. And you start adding charge to the body and you start jamming and messing with the ability of a virus to invade cells. Now that's all, that's all basic electrochemistry. There's nothing exotic about it. It's just no one's been applying it. And there's a big, and that's a big thing where all this sits is you know, testing for, to evaluate what's potential within the lab and what's potential shown by um, different experiments is one thing, but to actually move it out into a true clinical level testing where you're evaluating patients and stuff, the costs become astronomical, just staggering. You mean the, co- the cost of what becomes astronomical? The cost of testing, the cost of gaining approvals. Oh. It's just astronomical. Novacure to obtain their very first approval dropped over three hundred million dollars. Oh, it is crazy. It's it's phenomenal, and and it just goes up from there because every time you go on approval, even though it's the same basic physiologic mechanism, the cancer cell is different, or they're testing another attribute, and it has to go through this convoluted, antiquated methodology that's been set up by by the FDA and regulatory agencies, and gosh knows we need them, but they need to revise their thinking about what's coming up, what's potential, and how to best create a new method of approvals based around not just a cell type, but also about a basic mechanism type and go, well, if we can show this mechanism works in the lab and all these things, we don't, you don't need to do four years of big long studies we can knock this out in six months or something and move on. And well, so so how does this the machine works? By what emitting resonant frequencies that will make various targets resonate and then explode? Let's say like viruses or particular cells or bacteria. Or well, how does the machine work? They don't necessarily explode, but that is possible. Let me explain. There's 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 a whole variety of mechanisms where you can couple energy to cells. And I, I won't go into all of those, but I will just say that how the device operates is there's a radio frequency transmitter within it that is pulsed on and off through the use of what's called overmodulation. The overmodulation creates a pulse. And I've got a patented transmitter that produces a really fast uh, pulse. So basically, the pulse the emitted field from the device being wide broadband can interact with, say, like a cancer cell. And at certain frequency ranges, and this is part of the NovoCure patent as well, you jam the ability of the cell to divide. It messes with the microtubules and the spindles within, as a cell starts to divide, the frequency messes with that and jams it and, the, and it gets locked. And, it, and the cell can't divide, and it basically dies, is what happens. That's one method. There are other frequency ranges which can cause the cells to uptake extra water into them, these cancer cells. And then they can literally become so swollen, they will explode and die. And we have you know, a video of that happening to, as I said, leukemia cells. That does occur. It's a form of natural... It, you know, induced cell death, one might say, but it's semi-artificial insofar as that it's based on the fact that sw- the cell's gotten so large, the outer membrane is no longer can contain the pressure and it 
blows up. There are other mechanisms too that we think are possible. Different frequencies are required for different size cells. We're experimenting right now with different wave shapes. And there seems to be some indication that different wave shapes can play a part in the effectiveness of a particular frequency. So uh, there's all these little complex nuances that are in development and offer potential, but they're not, they're not developed. That's the best word for it. They're just not developed. So what is the, uh, the, the most prevalent use of your machines that you see right now from, you know, from people that use them? I don't know if you, you know, do you use the machines only yourself or do you sell them? And if you sell them, you know, what are our users saying they're using it for? Well, okay. So <laughs> this is a gray area. And so, yes, I do make and sell my devices. There are, there's another company up in Canada, Resident Light, that produces devices uh, that are built to the specifications called out in my electrical patents. And we've kind of gone in separate directions, but still the, the principles are the same. My devices are sold for agricultural use, and that's primarily. And now how somebody wishes to use it is up to them, but the technical name is called electroculture. And this is another attribute that frequency devices have, especially field-type frequency devices, is that they stimulate the growth of plants. There's, there's a lot of papers about this. A lot of work was done back in the early 1900s. Electroculture, again, and basically you can, uh, you can increase yields of plants uh, during the growth phase by using exposures to devices. You can shorten the germination time of seeds. You can in, increase the growth rate of plants all through exposure to electrical fields. And it's, it's well-documented. It's all in science. There's tons of papers on it. No one's applying it. Uh, you know, how that would influence the use of fertilizers and all, I have no idea. But it's traditionally, we think in terms of the use of fertilizers, but maybe they're just not as necessary as one might think but no one's really applying this on a commercial basis. There are people that play around in the gardens and what have you. Let's put it that way. Oh, how much has it uh, affected plant growth to, you know, either with your plants or to hobbyists that are it's using not, it? It's not unusual to see 20 to 30%. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so will I, um, when, when will people apply it? Like when it's, in, it's still in seed or when it's a so seed late or when, when's a good time to do it? You know, just about any time, it turns out. Uh, they'll apply it to seeds and they get faster germination and a little faster initial growth. They apply it to seedlings. The plant matures faster. They apply it during the growth phase. It, they, you tend to get larger yields. It just depends upon how it wishes, how one wishes to use it. There, it's a huge undeveloped market and, and people need to think in terms of like, well, it's not just plants. It's also, there's a whole lot of commercial processes that depend upon like the growth of yeast, bacteria, things like that, that we use. You're making great blue cheese. Well, it wouldn't be great if it just sped up and matured a little faster kind of thing. See, and these are all things that need to be experimented around, but nobody's doing that. It's all just sitting there in the background. And that's part of what I do is I go and dig this stuff out, put it out on the public you know, make people aware that it exists and, and hope to develop a little interest in it for somebody to go experiment and maybe eventually apply it because it's just sitting there. It's like this, 
huge gold mine. It's like somebody just needs to take a pick to it and pull some gold out of it. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. Literally. It's crazy how big it is. The plates, the, the research plate and potential for the use of frequencies is overflowing. I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. But everybody is very, has been brought up to think it's got to be biochemical solutions. One has to apply a chemical to make plants grow. One has to apply a chemical to get, you know, a response to some virus or bacterial infection or something. No, it's not necessarily true. There's places for that. And so when, um, pardon? when this is applied to plants, um, what's the protocol? Is it, you know, like literally, how would you apply it to a plant and for how long? What's an example? Best way to answer that is that the, the emitted field gets out probably about 30 feet. So if you stick it inside a, a room or area or something like that with a vertically oriented tube that therefore goes out 360 degrees around it, you might get what you got a you know 60 foot diameter circle and the treatment time might be just a couple minutes it doesn't have to be prolonged hmm. okay so you, you said people would do that what once a day they would treat their plants for a few minutes and yeah. they would experience maybe 20 30 percent faster growth or bigger yields or those yeah, kinds of things do that i once played around with there's a uh microorganism called it's a Weissman organism, is I think the name of it. At any rate, it produces a alcohol called butanol. And butanol is essentially a one-to-one replacement for gasoline. But the problem is it's slow to ferment. It's slow to break down. It doesn't produce high levels of like, you know, if, if you naturally ferment a yeast or something like to make a wine, it's going to stop around 10, 12% or somewhere in there just because if alcohol becomes toxic. Well, unfortunately, that's not so with butanol. But butanol is a byproduct of just about everything that grows out there. Grass clippings, leaves, you name it, you can turn it into butanol. And, you know, they use a commercial chemical process to make butanol fuel, but I experiment around with with the little microorganism that'll make that produces it using the device. We got some really great increases, like probably forty percent, just with a simple, you know, inoculate, expose, you know, have a set of non non exposed controls, and the density was probably about thirty to forty percent in just uh, one single exposure of five six minutes, as it you know the, the mature thirty forty percent. Oh, what do you mean? In other words, like if you take if the, there was a marker inside the test tubes and the marker would like turn pink and the darker the pink, the more butanol was formed. So it, day by, so looking at, say like the control, unexposed controls at day three, there's a certain level of pink in it. Looking at the exposed controls at day three, there's a much deeper level of pink in it. Have you tried to run a car off butanol, for instance? Like, well, what have I you done with not, the but people have. They've actually raced cars on it. Oh, what's the uh, the reactants that make butanol? What do they use as the initial? Uh, you said they use grass clippings or anything, or what do they use? Yeah, just about anything. Anything you know, you can you can take you can grind wood up into sawdust. You can use leaves. You can use grass. You can use twigs. It just about anything will make butanol. Can be used to make butanol. That's the beauty of it. Hmm. Okay, but nobody is. Working with that <laughs> again, it's just sitting there. There's huge potential. 
um, had his butanol rate versus uh, gasoline, let's say in a car engine, does the engine need to be modified or no? You know, is the miles per gallon the same? Like, was it better or worse? Well, it's it's essentially a one to one replacement. You know, like if you use ethanol or or methanol in your car, it's about a two to one. You use twice as much ethanol as you do gasoline for the same amount of energy output. Butanol, it's about one to one. Pretty amazing. So, in other words, you can take a yeah, gallon. Interesting. Go ahead. You said a gallon of what? You can use a gallon of butanol, put it in your in your vehicle, and it'll go just as many miles as it would on gasoline. And it's it doesn't tear up the aluminum and all that. And are are there any trade offs? Is there anything that's not um, as good about it, and what's better? Like you said, it it, it may preserve well, the engine I, more. Well, I think some of the some of the there's not too much of a trade off, as I understand. It's not really corrosive like aluminum. I mean, to aluminum like ethanol is, and seals and all that. It, it has just all positive. But they can't produce it inexpensively enough, and so you don't see it on the market. Hmm, okay. So the um, the machines you sell, like the agriculture, what are they? Pretty expensive? Are they portable? Like, uh, how can people, you know, find out more about them and see the specs and possibly order one? Well, they're not. Let's just put it this way: um, they weigh probably close to about thirty two, thirty three pounds, and they're they're pretty substantial. They've got some weight to them. That yes, they are expensive. They're made of expensive parts, <laughs> and they're handmade by me one at a time. The instruments up in Canada are more commercial, and those two are expensive. It's just the cost of doing business and what they cost. So they're they're about six thousand plus dollars right now. That's complete with a you know hand blown okay. glass plasma tube, a uh, purpose dedicated frequency generator, and so on and so forth. Okay. Generator is a very complex little instrument. It's actually a miniature computer, and you can manipulate the frequencies in many different ways with it. Mm. Well, very good. Um, What's the best place for people to go to find out more about your work? Well, I think if they want to see the instruments, my instrument, you should check out plasmasonics.com or can check out the company up in Canada, Resonant Light, which is resonantlight.com. Hmm, okay. If, if someone wants to read a complex explanation, and there's a ton of material on there. I haven't updated it in years, but it's it'll bore you to tears. But it's it's called rifetechnologies.com. And it goes on and on and on about stuff. So there's there's just tons of material there. Hmm. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, Richard, thank you for having me. I hope this was uh encouraging and informing for your listening audience. Thank you so much. And uh, have a a wonderful day. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.